Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Okay, so welcome to our show today. Today we have a, a guest and we're also recording uh, at Creighton University. We're live. Hey, give us a cheer. The live studio audience, what do we got here, Levi? About 40 people or so? Yeah, 40 uh, people. So yeah, we're fun to be here. Uh, we're at a conference labeled Humanomics. You heard me right, I didn't say economics, but rather humanomics. And so we're, we're trying to think about uh, if economists, the cold-hearted economists can actually have some feelings and, and uh, maybe think about that as, as they make decisions. So we'll see if, if we're successful at that. So, all right, do you wanna yeah. go ahead and jump into our guest introduction, Levi? So our guest is Dr. Maria Pia Baganelli. Uh, she's a professor of economics at Trinity University in San Antonio. Uh, she works on Adam Smith, David Hume, uh, and monetary theory. Uh, she's also interested in the relationship between the Scottish Enlightenment and experimental economics. Uh, so what do we know about Adam Smith and his faith? Did he have any uh, faith of any type? I've kind of heard lack of faith, so I thought, uh, yeah. I, but I don't know if he's middle of the road or just uh, what's, what's your understanding of where Adam Smith uh, fell on that stuff? This is probably one of the most difficult questions to answer about Adam Smith because he is very ambiguous and never explicit. And so secondary literature has to guess from his very ambiguous texts. Mm. And the secondary literature goes from he is a believer to he is a non-believer or is a theist but there is not. A yeah, it seems all over the place. I don't even understand how that could be with an influential guy. How would what? Were his parents? Is there knowledge about that or anything? Or his not? mother was religious, uh, Presbyterian. Okay. Presbyterian. His uh, father died before he was born. Oh, right. So we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And. But likely, it would have been common in those days. Presbyterian to marry a Presbyterian, most likely, maybe. Especially right? in Scotland. Yeah, especially yeah. in Scotland. So likely <laughs> both had that. So okay. he does not, does not have to say extremely positive things about the Catholics. Uh, I he, don't either, so that's <laughs> a, uh, <laughs> the running <Uh-oh>. theme. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I should interject for a second. We are at Creighton University, listeners, and so <laughs> Levi is like, Loving this, he's feeling so at home, surrounded by uh, Catholic thought and Catholic (laughs) university, and there's just this Catholic vibe here. So he's been loving it. So okay, sorry. No, that's okay. But one of the things that is is sure is that his development or his understanding of our development of morality does not rely on revealed religion. Okay. Uh, So theory of moral sentiments has basically nothing to do with revealed religion. Yeah, maybe take it from there on, on uh, I'm really foggy on the mutual sympathy, and that's how we kind of find ourselves or learn about ourselves by having other people to reflect off of. Can you expand on that and, and tell us where that, uh, where that goes with the Smith's thought? So for Smith, humans are social beings. So we cannot live by ourselves, and we cannot understand ourselves by ourselves. In order to be able to express any judgments on ourselves, 
we have to have the mirrors of others, as yeah. Howard Smith defines us. So we need the looking glass of society in order to be able to understand who we are and how we are. Yeah, we don't know how big of a jerk we are until somebody tells us we're a jerk, right. basically, right? If we're, and he uses the illustration of being on an island, I think, correct? Mm. Like if you're on your own island or living alone or isolated or something, I thought the way that story starts yeah. off and sentiments. Sort I might be totally wrong, so <laughs> no, <laughs> I will trust the scholar on this. So I, no, he presents an, uh, an hypothetical as an hypothetical it is not possible for actual human beings. Like if you were raised by yourself, um, you would have no sense of morality and you were, right. would have no sense of beauty either. So mm. he says, I judge uh, my nose by your nose. I judge mm. my sight by your sight. So I cannot say whether I see well or not unless you tell me that you can see the clock in the back and I can't. Mm -hmm. Then I realize, whoops, maybe I need glasses. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, the, his understanding of how we judge ourselves is through, uh, I don't know if I'm a jerk unless you, I, I look at you and say, well, you behave differently from me mm -hmm. and you are actually quite nice. So that maybe is that I am a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it's this bouncing back and forth, exactly. right, of comparison, always kind of comparing. Mm -hmm. um, and so he called that mutual sympathy, didn't he? Uh, as far And so can you expand on, like, for the listeners, sympathy, empathy, mm -hmm. you know, what, what exactly does that mean? And how does that get us to a deeper life meaning somehow in, in Smith's world? So sympathy is a technical term for Smith and implies our ability to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes through our imagination. So is is a tool that transports us in a different place. So we are limited by our body to what we know about others. So I have no idea how you feel because my body contains me. Mm -hmm. So the only way for me to try to understand how you feel is to imagine myself in your shoes and see how I would react if I were you. Mm -hmm. But it's me. Right? Right, so it's right. I, I come in your shoes. So it has that uncertainty automatically built into exactly. it. Exactly. Right? And so sympathy is, is our imagination, is, is, a, is a tool that we use to understand others. Mm -hmm. And it's an imaginative process. So I try to, to put myself in your shoes with my imagination to see how you feel. You do the same, and that's our mutual sympathy. If I have like a cramp in my foot right now, and it's hurting, and I say, ah, ah, it hurts, it hurts, it's really painful. Yes, oh, what a pain in my foot. And if I continue doing it, which is what I would like to do, and, but I put myself in your shoes and I look at me through your eyes. I think, whoa, if I looked at you and you would start screaming and yelling and complaining about the cramp in your foot that you have, <laughs> I would think you're a little bit awkward. A little crazy. Yeah. And I'm not, don't want to quite associate with you. Mm -hmm. And so I can put myself <laughs> in your shoes and, and see how you look at me. And so I'm going to pitch down the volume of my complaint because I don't want to look completely crazy in your eyes. Yeah. And you do the same for your feelings. And this is how we adjust the pitch of our passion, as Mitt would say. Yeah, adjust the pitch of our passion. Yeah, okay. Uh, so that we can actually communicate with each other. Yeah. How does, uh, it seems like Smith uses gratitude and resentment in a distinct way. Can mm -hmm. you 
tell us how that plays into these passions and sympathies with the idea of gratitude and resentment? So we have an innate desire to be praiseworthy and an innate desire not to be blameworthy. And I look at how Patrick behaves with, remember your name, sorry. Nathan. And I see that Patrick is very, very nice with Nathan. And I... <laughs> with the fist bump exactly. going on as we're going, yes, got it. And I look at him and I admire him. And it's like, wow, this is very nice. And I see that Nathan expresses gratitude to the action that, that Patrick mm. has done toward him. And so I understand that Patrick is praiseworthy because I am praising him. Nathan is praising him. Mm. So I make a mental note to say the behavior that Patrick did is worth of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And that's how I learn how to, to what is praiseworthy. Is that gratitude, get, that gratitude though is like your personal feelings contained within you? Or is it something I'm giving them? Because I'm giving them praise, but I feel gratitude. So I see that Nathan is has gratitude for because of what Patrick has done. Okay. And I can only observe it. If Patrick does something nice to me, I can also be grateful to him. Right. But it is done through observation of others. Mm-hmm. And that's how you learn how you behave yourself. Yeah. And similarly, if Patrick, on the other hand, is very nasty with, uh, with Nathan, then I look at Nathan and Nathan's like, why are you beating me up? Like, uh, you have no reason to beat me up. And I see that he's resenting that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Then I learned that, that Patrick is blameworthy because uh-huh. he generated resentment. Mm-hmm. And I approve that resentment as well, right. just like I approve the gratitude that, that uh, Nathan has if yeah. Patrick behaves well. And so then your actions or behavior can be a part of trying to share that feeling with Nathan after getting hit or helped. Um, that there's that mutual... I just observe it at this moment, mm-hmm. right? Then when I, when I have to behave, I look at say, what Patrick has done, and I say, well, I want to be just as praiseworthy mm-hmm. as Patrick was, so I'm going to be nice with you. And I, I remember when Patrick was a nasty person with Nathan, and I don't want to be receiving that resentment or be a res- deserve of that resentment. And so I will avoid behaving like Nathan has done. And there, there seems to be a, then a contagious type effect to mm-hmm. this where Smith would say how important this is for society, right? We're kind of talking, taking this very micro level exchange between the two mm-hmm. and then you're learning from it. Other people are observing it. Society starts to evolve right. norms and, and, and it ends up influencing culture through this very micro observations that we have. Right. Because I, I see that Patrick does this very nice thing uh, for, for Nathan, and Nathan is grateful. And I think, wow, that actually is a very praiseworthy action. And then I ask you, do you think that was praiseworthy? And you said, yes. And I asked him and said, do you think it was praiseworthy? And you said, yes. So when most of us agree that there is a praiseworthy action, then that action becomes even more praiseworthy in a sense is a sanction that if we all agree that it is praiseworthy, that is praiseworthy. Yeah. I would think that this should be kind of news for some of our listeners thinking that, well, where's greed fit in? I thought Adam Smith was the father of greed and capitalism. And so I I think to learn that he thought completely different than Mm -hmm. the way some 
maybe modern or not so modern interpretations that Smith has been misunderstood for a couple centuries now, or pushing it, I guess. 1776 was Wealth of Nations and 1759 was Theory of Moral Sentiments. So the, the book he wrote first cared about these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And that was then leading to how these impersonal exchanges. And so you have a quote in your paper that you provided here. For Smith, people are not hedonistic pleasure seekers nor rational calculators. And I'm like, darn, I guess I've been off all these years. I thought that's exactly what we learned from Adam Smith is that it's a marginal benefit, marginal cost. If marginal benefits are at least as much as marginal cost, calculation, boom, I live my life. Do I brush my teeth this morning? It's based off that calculation. And it turns out that we're not hedonistic seekers. So can you expand on that? So why do you brush your teeth this morning? <laughs> Why did you do it? Well, in, well, I'm more, I'm in, more in, thinking in, the rational calculator that you're saying no, he, that people aren't rational calculators, that this, it's more this feeling part is right. what he's really basing his whole theory around, right? So I do care about being praiseworthy. Yeah. And if I don't brush my teeth, then you can say, well, Maria stink. But it is the praise that would I receive more than the utility itself mm -hmm. is the blame that I want to avoid or the blame worthiness that I want to avoid right. that matters to me. So I want to get to receive gratitude and avoid resentment. Yeah. Um, and those are not necessarily hedonistic. And that's the driving force. I mean, part so, of them, yeah, least. and but he doesn't discount that. I kind of use this for example with my students that my brushing the teeth is so this is a one I've been using for years. So I do a calculation in the morning like I should brush my teeth. Why? Because my teeth will get cavities, they'll fall out and maybe that'll lead to monetary or painfulness in my mouth, right? And so I should be in a habit of doing that. And so, but on a given morning, if I'm late for class and there's a test that day, I would choose to skip brushing my teeth, knowing that the present value, discounted value of, of brushing your teeth every day, you can get away that the actual marginal benefit of brushing my teeth that particular morning um, is far less than the cost of miss being late for my test. Mm -hmm. And so I don't brush my teeth. And so that's, that's Russ's little rational calculator with just about everything in life. And, and I, I'm guessing I'm an outlier, but uh, is what I've learned over the years teaching economics. So I, 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 that's what I've wasn't sure Smith wouldn't necessarily rule out that we can make calculations, mm -hmm. but that's not the driving force. Is that the correct interpretation? I think so. Because in, in terms of brushing your teeth, I don't think Smith would have any problems with it. The only thing that may add to it is, is it just because you don't want to spend more with a dentist or because you don't want other people to walk away from mm -hmm. it. Because, yeah, it could because, be a combination yeah. of both, yeah. Um, and also... <laughs> or my wife giving me a kiss, right. actually. <laughs> another motivation for me, yes. But one thing that he would add to it is, because he used actually like a toothpicker as an example. Oh, of, he does? He does. Mm. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if the toothbrush existed at the time, <laughs> but toothpicks apparently did. And they could come in different forms, including gold. So you had a golden toothpick oh. that you carry with you to show off to your friends. Oh. Because I have a golden toothpick and you don't. So that is, is, a, is a, yeah. an act of showing off what you have yeah. and others don't. And you talked about this last night, maybe just a little bit before we go to break on, on that. You look virtuous potentially by having the gold toothpick. 
but that doesn't mean you're truly virtuous or kind of what you did last night. I can't, I can't put mm -hmm. it articulate as well as you did, but uh, maybe talk about that. Maybe not necessarily virtuous, but you're looked at. So right. tells us that we care. Oh, because we seek their exactly. approbation. Exactly. We care about being looked at by others with approval, not just being looked at like, ah, I don't want to look at you. Um, <laughs> but we care about being looked at in a positive way. Yeah. And having the golden toothpick is one way through which we attract people's attention because it's something that only I have. And if you don't have it, you look at me yeah. with admiration because yeah. I have something that you don't have. I think I want to get one of those. I, <laughs> that, I mean, this is great. I got new ammunition for my Adam Smith story. I can go to the golden toothpick now. So <laughs> thank you for that. There's always these little morsels that we pick up. So, all right. Well, that looks like a good place for us to cut to our break. And uh, when we get back, we're going to go to a question and answer uh, with the audience and, and involve some other uh, panelists. We'll see you on the flip side. The Gortney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Okay, we're back from break and uh, we're gonna go to our panel discussion and Q&A from the audience portion. And so, uh, first of all, I just wanna introduce uh, the first panelist who's gonna talk for us here. It's uh, Dr. Michael Thomas, and he's gonna give us some thoughts on uh, the conference and, and what we've been learning. Yeah, so welcome to Creighton. Uh, this came out of, a, of a, several conversations that I have with other faculty about how we fill one of Creighton's missions um, in leading with the liberal arts. So I've been reading um, books that are in the same area talking about Adam Smith and sort of how economists today can learn from Adam Smith. And so one of these books is by Vernon Smith and, and Bart Wilson, Humanomics, which gave us the name for the conference. I thought it fit really well with Creighton's initiative to lead with the liberal arts. So we invited uh, Dr. Matthew Resnicek in and, and conversations with other faculty from other campuses to bring students. What I love about this conference is the students read the material on their own. They get together on their own campus and talk about it, and then they come here a third time to talk about the ideas. And so they start to have some pretty serious opinions about what's in the texts by the time you've done it three times. All right, and then next, uh, Dr. Derek Yonai is going to uh, speak a little bit about his view on all of this. Go for your state! For your state! <laughs> so today we spent three sessions, intense sessions at least in our room, talking about how do we bring humanity back to economics? Because the problem with economics, especially from a layperson's perspective, is that one, it's about greed, and that people are, we treat them like bricks. They're all interchangeable, 
widgets that we just throw around and look, I'm an economist, I have no idea what a widget is, but how do we bring the dignity back to the human being and bring that person who has hopes, dreams, love, passion, and really begin to create a fuller discussion of how is it that different people with different lives and different beliefs, how is it we actually get along voluntarily to create this richness that we call human diversity and create human flourishing? Okay, great. So let's get our first question from the floor. And go so, ahead and say who you are and what university you're from. My name is Joey Higgins. I'm from Creighton. So my question is, does our, do our modern economic models fail to account for the impartial spectator? And if so, how do we incorporate that back? Okay, who wants to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is bombing. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Maria has now raised the professors her hand. Won't talk. Uh, Maria raised her hand. I'm going to swing that mic over here and we'll see what... Boogie. All right. <laughs> go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Um, so the standard models may, but not all economists use standard models. So the, the part of the readings that you've done by Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson show you that it is possible to, to incorporate impartial spectator in economic modeling. Mm -hmm. And it depends on what kind of question are you asking and what kind of experiments are you going to design knowing that there is an impartial spectator. So it is perfectly possible to do it. It has been done several times, especially by Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson. Let me, let me just add uh, this, this traditional economic model listeners is, uh, I wanna maximize my happiness. My little happiness function has the quantity of beer, the quantity of chicken wings, the quantity of pizza, <laughs> and maybe the quantity of times I hold my baby or whatever. We can throw things, so it's, it's a, we start off with a very materialistic model, and the more I have, the more happier I am. That's with diminishing returns or the law of diminishing marginal utility so that each additional hour I spend with my baby, I'm ready to hand it over to somebody else, right? It's not as precious as that first five minutes uh, versus the last five minutes after you've been holding her for two hours. And so that all gets factored in mathematically into our traditional model. That model has been extended by other people, Gary Becker being a notable Nobel laureate that said, our self-interest actually includes the interest of other people. So we can look at our family and I, I'm concerned about the number of beer and chicken wings that my wife has in addition to mine. And that can be included into my own preference function so that we have interdependent utility functions. And so then that can be extended to friends and family. And so I think one of the most commonly misunderstood things is that Smith did not talk about selfishness being the principle, but rather self-interest. And your interest can include other human beings' interest. And so that's where a lot of this conference goes in that uh, with the humanomics, instead we're, we're letting these passions and sympathies be part of the model and, and drive the results. Okay, so our next question. Oh, can I add? Yeah, yeah, oh, please, sorry. sorry. But the part of at least Vernon Smith's interpretation of Adam Smith with Bart Wilson, to Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson's interpretation of, of Adam Smith and current economics is, is not just that we want to include others in our utility function, but the, mm -hmm. the utility function model may not be the, the appropriate model to understand human behaviors. Right. And mostly because the utility function model focuses on output and exclusively on output context-free. Yeah. And instead, 
Adam Smith, what, what Adam Smith may teach us is forget the output, but look at the rules that you're actually applying in different contexts. Mm -hmm. So is, is, is a paradigm shift from yeah. uh, um, utility maximization because so it's not a question of, I do care about you. And, and like Gary Becker is pretty good in saying that we do care about others. But the problem is, again, do you look at just the outcome or do you look at how that outcome has been generated? Mm -hmm. And what Smith, Adam Smith uh, has been teaching Vernon Smith and Bart Wilson is now we do care more about the context and the rules that we are applying to receive the outcome as opposed to the outcome itself. Yeah, and the, the aha moment that Vernon Smith had in the lab, again, another Nobel laureate, is that people didn't act the way economics predicted. They weren't acting selfishly, and, and all of a sudden we're getting a large fraction, a significantly large fraction of people making a choice that goes against that, that more selfish model. And so he doesn't throw out modeling altogether, but rather says there are situations where there's context matters and, and especially in smaller groups, right? Where we have that sociability of humans. So we've got one yeah, so, more panelist. So that's exactly right. So, um, so the, the, the thing, adding your, your spouse into your utility function to say, like, I care about me, I also care about what makes my spouse happy, so I buy her flowers on Valentine's Day. That's one way of sort of fixing the model. But it gets harder when you're talking about the laboratory experiment because the, the question is to one participant, I'm going to give you $10, how much are you going to give to your partner? And they get to either accept or reject that, that gift. So... An economist might say, as long as they give them one of the $10, they're maximizing their utility by taking that $1. But once you start realizing that people reject that dollar, the question comes up, what is this reason, right? And if it's justice, you can't simply throw justice into a model and say, oh, I'll just add another variable. That's where Jay. we get uncomfortable, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, how do we put that into a model? Do we have the tools necessary to deal with questions of justice. That's one example of where our tools are sort of limited at the margin. And even putting everything into that utility function, you think about what it does when you say, you know, you tell your spouse, I love you, which means you're in my utility function. Think about how that kind of dehumanizes her, right? She's in there sitting next to like ice cream and chicken wings. And she just has a heavier weight on it as opposed to in real life, we care about real people. We care about real outcomes. We care about the process. Uh, one of the questions I usually leave people when we do this humanomics weekend uh, down in Emporia is, how many people have fought wars for efficiency? That's what UMAX is. As opposed to how many people go out and give their life for things like freedom, for justice, for a better life for other people. And those are the things that our normal economic models just do not deal with very well. All right, good. Back to our next question. Hi, Patrick from Creighton University. Another Creighton. So throughout the day, I have throughout the day I've agreed with the uh, kind of the condemnation of Max U. But then I stopped and thought about it, and a lot of the things that we like about Max U are social reforms from people like Bentham, people like Mill, who proposed policies that were pretty radical and wouldn't wouldn't really work without kind of a social larger group consideration. How do you see Smith as? Does he leave room for kind of this social progress, or is that all wrapped up in praiseworthiness or an impartial spectator? So, something a little more abstract than what a straight utilitarian might present. 
So for Smith, certain kind of conducts are context dependent. Actually, all conducts are context dependent. And under certain circumstances that may be societal circumstances, you would expect to see certain kind of behaviors that you would not expect to see under other circumstances. So the easiest example that I think you, I can think of at least, is infanticide. As Mitt says, infanticide is more pardonable when a society is extremely poor. So there are societies in which poverty is so devastating in which, and this is how we actually opens the wealth of nations. So the introduction of the wealth of the nation uh, tells us that in some society, the poverty is so devastating that you, you are forced or you think yourself forced to abandon your infants, your elderly and your sick to be devoured by wild beasts or to be abandoned. In rich society, that doesn't happen anymore. So infanticide is acceptable or perdonable in one, under certain conditions, but not under other conditions. The, so that is an is explicit example. In, um, in his lecture on jurisprudence, which were students' notes that were eventually found, so they were published after, long after Smith was dead, and this was meant to be his third book, right? His, his yeah, kind of but he complete burnt. the bookends, but it so didn't. He, he didn't, it didn't feel it was complete. So he asked to, his manuscript to be burnt. So I'm not sure how happy he would have been uh, <laughs> to see been actually yeah. the lecture um, of, of jurisprudence be published. But nevertheless, um, he describes the different treatment of women in different societies. And in societies in which physical strength is important, then women are going to be marginalized simply because they're not physically as strong as men. And the laws are going to be written by men, and of course, women will be put on the side. But in commercial societies, when physical strength is no longer the predominant, predominant factor, then women will become friends, and it will become peers to men. So in a sense, you, you, he has very, he can see significant changes, significant reforms throughout history, even though they are not necessarily imposed, but they emerge with the emergence of society or with the modifications of societies. Um, similarly for slavery. So slavery is something that is more typical of uh, poorer society, of non-commercial societies. But once you introduce commerce, slavery should go away. Granted, he's criticizing slavery in his time, right? Because he mm -hmm. lives in a commercial right. society and he doesn't believe that it is appropriate. Yet, to have a Benthamite approach of, I'm going to redesign the constitution of a country uh, or design from scratch the constitution of a country so that it is rational, that is not something that the Smith would appreciate or would propose. So I think an interesting way to put it is exactly what Maria said, which is, you know, one of the critiques that people have of common law is the notion that it's retrospective. So people say it can't be prospective. And that kind of runs along the same lines, I guess, with uh, his economic argument. But one of the things common law does really well is it says, we know what happened in the past. We know what justice is. But what's great about it is because it's based on common consent 
as our society changes and our notion of what justice is and our context changes, our law is able to change. We just have to discover what that is. So I think this is one of those instances where people see the sort of obvious benefit of what a top-down sort of utilitarian plan could do, but ignore the unseen of what a really a market or a legal market called common law can actually generate to solve these particular problems. Okay, another question? Oh no! Oh, sorry. One more. One more microphone. Oh. Yeah, I think I think there's an important point to be brought up about the the role of women that that Maria pointed out. And it seems, in some ways, to anticipate what Mary Wollstonecraft would argue, right? Like that the need, the politics of friendship, should undergird this this context of sociability, especially in terms of educational reforms. So it's interesting to think of Smith as a broader part of this. British, especially the Scottish Enlightenment, but Wollstonecraft's radical politics of, of women's access to education in order to participate fully in the, the market as a whole. Okay, who's got the mic? We're ready, go for it. Right, so my name is Caroline and I'm from Emporia State University. And I kind of just have a pretty broad question for you guys. So maybe anyone who's listening, who's in you know, one of their first econ classes, kind of this why does humanom humanomics matter? It just seems to make it messier and make my tests more difficult. <laughs> so uh, why is it important and why do we need it? Yeah, so economics is, is not necessarily in a crisis, but facing a lot of attention for its limitations and applicability. So there was a consensus, the neoclassical consensus uh, within economics that had this this approach which tried to reduce and apply economics to the greatest number of possible things with the smallest number of considerations, which was great for tests, but unfortunately really bad for describing the world. So with the rise of things like behavioral psychology, which pushed back on some of the modeling assumptions of economics, there has to be a response. So in order to um, expand the base of economics and and to answer some of these questions, we've gone looking other places, which is great because for people like Maria who study Smith, we can go back and look at someone who wasn't narrowly constrained and begin to start seeing what over time economists who have thought about economics in this unconventional or non-conventional way have brought to the table and answer the questions in a, in a more satisfactory, more accurate, more descriptive way. For me, what I like about it is the fact that it allows us to provide a narrative that is relational and that people can actually buy into. Uh, one of my biggest complaints about economics and people who are at a center that I used to work at understand is that it doesn't matter how right you are if no one listens to you. You're still wrong. And we have a lot of potential answers that we can give people to help enhance human flourishing and reduce poverty. But the problem is, is that if we don't address it in a humanistic way, in a way that resonates with the soul of human beings, who cares? No one's going to listen to us. So for my POV, I think this is great because it gives us an opportunity of getting back to the messiness that we're often criticized for just throwing away and assuming away and get back to what humanity is about and say, yes, we are about solving the poverty problem. We are about making life better for human beings on earth. We're not greedy. We're not about money. We're about how do we create more joy on this planet? So the model that um, Michael mentioned before, or the, the game that Michael mentioned before, the ultimatum game, in which I give you some money and you have the opportunity to share it with somebody else, 
and dependent on whether the other person accepted it or not, you go home with what you're left and the other person goes home with what they've left. If you play that game with a person, with another human being, mostly, and the other human, human, their human being, if the offer that you, um, uh, that you gave them is too low, most likely we reject the offer. And they're happy to go home with nothing because they thought that um, the offer that you sent wasn't fair. Exactly the same game with exactly the same payoff um, is done with a computer. You will not reject that offer. So here as an economist, I have a problem because what I'm teaching you doesn't work. So in a sense, I, I actually disagree with Derek. Like what we say, some of what we say at least, it doesn't work, it's not right. And we have to understand what is wrong in what we are teaching. And is there a way to understand human behavior that is actually more effective in understanding what we're studying? Yeah, I, I would uh, echo that. I, I, I was thinking it's good for economics and principles of economics because it invites and brings more people to the table. And so I think a, a challenge maybe for us professors then is how do we, how do we get that into the principles curriculum in an effective way when our curriculum's already pretty jam-packed with stuff that we're not throwing out. So you're not getting out of, you know, marginal benefit, marginal cost, and we still get, supply and demand does tell us something, even the experiments that Smith did. I mean, those impersonal exchanges, that all, that stuff all holds still. So I'm hoping that this additional richness and humanity that we bring to it uh, can help uh, economics grow and take it a different direction to help uh, more people come to the table for it. So... All right. Well, I think that's a good place for us to, uh, to wrap up and I appreciate all of our guests and uh, thank you for inviting us up to Creighton. It's been a, it's been a great event. And uh, so thank you, students. You did a good job and we've, uh, I think, covered a lot of territory. And for all our listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed a little Smith history and uh, from on behalf of the Gortney Institute, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thank you.